Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Just a warning before we start. This episode contains descriptions of domestic violence and strong language and may not be suitable for everyone. I'm not scared to die. I'm not scared, but I don't want to leave my son. It's a real, it's like someone sticking a sticking plaster on you year after year. You know, when you're cleaning someone's shit off the, the wall and sobbing on your knees, it's not, not my best moment. <laughs> These women are described as the most vulnerable of vulnerable. And he looked me dead in the eye and he said, I will do much worse to you than that. I'm Maeve McLennigan, and this is The Tip-Off, the podcast where we look behind the scenes of some of the UK's best investigative journalism. In the past, we've heard from some amazing journalists, Heidi Blake, Claire Newell, Rebecca Almanera. But as we start our second series, I wanted to tell you about a project that I've been working on. It's a story of women fleeing domestic violence, only to find a safety net that is falling apart at the seams. In late July, a friend pointed me to a message that had appeared on her Facebook feed. It was a post that read, Please help. We are seven women in a refuge in central London. Our ceiling has fallen in. The property is flooded. We have no electricity. There are eight young children here. Can anyone help us? Immediately it caught my attention. In fact, for the past couple of months or so, my colleague and I had been working on the start of an investigation into domestic violence refuges all across England. After reading that Facebook post, I sent a message to the woman that had written it. We're going to call her Carrie to protect her identity. I said I was a journalist and I'd like to talk to her, and then I waited nervously to see if she'd reply. And she did. So on a Monday morning in early August... Me and my colleague Jasmine, we raced across the city to Kensington and Chelsea Town Hall and met her there. When we arrived, we spot a group of three women huddled against the wind on the steps of the Town Hall building. You guys from Refuge? Yeah, Refuge. Hi. Hi. How are you guys doing? Stressed. Yeah, Yeah. I bet. I bet. It's been a long day. It's been a long weekend. The women are here to talk to the council having spent a long weekend camped out on the living room floor after several of the ceilings in the refuge collapsed. Now they're trying to talk to housing officials at the council to see what happens next. Ticket number 1201. Please go to deck In between meetings, we grab them and ask a few questions, recording their answers on our phones. Carrie, the woman who wrote that first Facebook post, Tells me what's happened. We live in a women's refuge and on 
early Saturday morning, the ceiling collapsed uh, in one of the bedrooms. The fire brigade were called, um, and there's lots of flooding. And so what happens now? Like, do you, can, is your stuff still in the air? Yeah, okay, so actually, um, just a, a quick update. Um, in the last hour, one of the other room ceilings crashed in. So um, that's two bedrooms now um, with ceilings that crashed in. Luckily, oh, so this is after, they've said that, it's, um, that we're safe to go back. Kerry is worried. The women have been told by the council that they could be moved 20 miles away to another area of London. For some of them, the areas they're proposing are danger zones, places their abusers could find them. But it's also a disruption they just don't need. Carrie has a young daughter who hops around and brings her mum little flowers she's picked as we talk. It's the summer holidays right now, but Carrie's worried that if she moves, She'll have to move her daughter to yet another school. We said we don't want to leave our um, schools, um, support networks that we've built up. And, you know, you might think, what kind of support network would you build up in a month? But if you fled domestic violence, you probably have been isolated for a long time. I, I was certainly isolated for 16 years. And to suddenly be free, that one, that one month has changed my life entirely. Sat on the bench next to us is another woman from the shelter. We'll call her Susan. She starts to cry. I'm just so nervous, she says. In the weeks and in months to come, I'll keep in contact with Carrie, Susan and other women from the shelter. But that morning, on the steps of the council building, we had no idea what was coming next. I work at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and we started thinking about looking into domestic violence provision after a story broke earlier this year. So when I saw an article um, on the Independence website about Sunderland being the only major city in the UK to not have a refuge, I wanted to know what the state of refuges across the country looked like. This is my colleague Jasmine. My name is Jasmine Anderson. The story Jasmine has spotted, one that Sunderland Council was planning to withdraw all refuge funding, which would effectively leave the city without any shelters. Now, the council has since rode back on that, and there is temporary funding keeping the doors open there. But the article made us both think about just how precarious some of these refuges were. I just wondered how, in 2017, we could actually have a city in the UK without a refuge. To me, it just seems like a mandatory thing that we need when violence against women is still so very prevalent. If this was happening in Sunderland, we thought, what else could be happening around the country? So we started to think about ways to capture data. We decided to set up a survey for refuge managers, people on the ground that really knew what was going on. We created this simple Google form, but it was designed to collect as much information as possible. I ran it by a few polling experts for their thoughts, and then we hit the phones to try and get people to fill it in. It was a case of pretty much ringing every single number in the directory to get people to speak to us. And of course, domestic violence is a highly sensitive, highly confidential issue where if it went wrong, we could put a lot of women at risk. So we needed to ring those managers, establish a code of trust with them so they knew that what we were doing with this information was to dig into the wider issues that they were facing in that area and that they could be trusted with an investigative reporter. It was a time-consuming task, 
calling up refuge managers, explaining to them who we were, and then noting down their stories and their responses to the survey. We call people like Dawn. I'm a very passionate refuge manager for Salford Women's Aids. And now with Dawn, she'd seen basically all of her funding cuts since 2014. We worked it out not long ago and we're 60% we've had to turn away, 60% of our referrals we've had to turn away. I actually did something the other day for our accounts, I think. Let me have a look. We had 180 requests for emergency accommodation and we could only accept 66. I can't do that. So over, over what period was that? A year. So let's leave Jasmine hitting those phones. It's now been two days since I met Kerry and Susan on the steps of Kensington and Chelsea Town Hall. They've been housed temporarily in a travel lodge in North London. So I jump on a train to head up there to meet them. So, how many, so there's seven women total staying in the shelter, and of those, how many? Four, four of us have been housed. So four housed, okay. And will all the other three? I find the women sitting in the hotel cafe as their children run around or squirm in their laps. They point out other tired-looking people dotted around the room. They're survivors of the Grenfell Tower fire, housed in the same travel lodge. Everyone here is far from home. I get speaking to Susan. When I last seen her, she was in tears. Hers was one of the rooms that flooded when the ceiling came crashing down. We headed to her hotel room for some quiet. There she pulls out her phone and plays me a recording, the voice of her husband. For more than an hour, Susan and I talk about all she's gone through. We've asked an actor to read her words from that day, to protect her identity. So my husband, he started, it started out as this really charismatic guy. He started out as this really amazing person who was really successful, just like me. And we had so much in common, funny, articulate, all those things. And slowly I started to see some anger issues. This was after we got married, about six months in. I started seeing him using prescription drugs. That moved to alcohol in addition to the prescription drugs. Then that moved to cocaine, alcohol and prescription drugs. He'd been drinking one night. I'd helped him down the stairs to get into bed and he just went off and hit me and he pushed me and I fell to the ground and he kept hitting and hitting and hitting and I was screaming. There were always really good times, really, really amazing times and then there would be that one moment of bad and... The one moments of bad, now that I look back at them, were horrible. There were times where he had me choked, grabbed me by the neck and thrown me down on the ground. There were times when he'd taken a telephone charger cable and the metal end of the bit and whipped me with it, hit me in the face. I had welts all over my face, one across my cheek. I had to lie about what had happened. He'd grab me by the arms. I'd have bruises all the time. It was so hard to leave because he would make promises. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll get better, I'll get better. I'm going to a nine-week programme for my anger, that was his promise, but it just got worse. Then one night he came home drunk and he... I was trying to defuse the situation, I said. And I said to him, you've hit me so many times, you don't do that to someone you love, please. And he looked me dead in the eye, didn't blink, 
wide-eyed, came up two inches to my face and he said, I will do much worse to you than that. And that was the one night I decided to believe him because in my mind I did have this fear that one day he was going to hit me and not stop. That one day I'd be lying in bed and all of a sudden it wasn't him grabbing me by the ankle and pulling me up, he was going to stab me with a knife from the kitchen. So that was the night I decided to leave him. Desperate to leave, Susan rang a domestic violence helpline. But there wasn't a refuge place free for her. In fact, she had to wait three weeks, sleeping on the floors of friends, before a space opened up. I heard later that that's not uncommon. Women spend on average one to two weeks waiting for refuge places. But for some, it can be up to six months. One woman we spoke to said she called the police out four times while she waited. Now Susan is angry. Notting Hill Housing, who had a trust that owned the refuge building that Susan was housed in, have tweeted that all the women have been relocated locally and that they'll be back in the refuge soon. They say, yeah, it's safe, it's safe, and then they come back and they say, move in, move in, and then my ceiling collapses in on me. All my things are ruined, all my belongings are gone, I have no clothes. One of the girls in the refuge has given me her clothes to wear. I took pride in my appearance, and all of a sudden, I don't have these things anymore. So right now, we are in a hostel that we have two nights stay in, provided by Hestia. After that, even the women that don't have housing yet, they're out. They have to go back to the refuge that currently has the office caved in, two rooms caved in and flooding in most of the rooms, mice everywhere. We went back today, we saw three mice just in the living room. It's overrun and the smell, you can smell it from the down the street, the dampness and the mildew and the mould. They're supposed to go back tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'm supposed to move into my place in a B&B, but these girls, these women who've become friends with, may not have anywhere to go. In the hotel room next door is Fatima. She's exhausted. Last night, she says, she woke up screaming, waking up her two-year-old who shares the bed with her. Again, we asked an actor to read her words. Today they offered me a place in North London I can't go to certain areas. I'm scared. I have to save my son. I'm not scared to die, but I don't want to leave my son. I asked Fatima where she'll sleep tomorrow. I thought to sleep in Chelsea Hospital lobby. Went to the refuge to collect my things today. I took for my son his coat because I don't want him to be cold. So I took his cozy coat he can sleep on his pushchair in the waiting room and if someone asks me, I'll say it's an emergency and I'm waiting for something. This is my plan. It's gone 11 at night by the time I leave the hotel. If I'm tired, I can't imagine how these women are feeling. Back at the office, I dig into council minutes and company reports. It turns out the Kensington and Chelsea Refuge is run by a charity called Hestia. They've held the council contract for years, but in 2015 they were asked to bid for it again, and with pressure from the council to cut their costs, they reduced their budget by 14%. The women have told me that the actual building is owned by Notting Hill Housing Trust, 
I check the land registry records and this all checks out. So I start digging into their annual accounts. It seems that they too have cut their budgets for social housing in recent years. And they recognise that they've missed their own targets for responding to complaints in time. When I ask them about it, they say they're working to reduce the time they spend responding to complaints. And they also say that over time they've sought to become more efficient by reducing management costs so they can make their funds go further and ensure they have more money to reinvest in their core purpose, providing more homes for low-income Londoners. I talk to Hestia too, and they tell me yes, there were complaints about mice, the fire alarms and leaks, but they were all seen to. And they agree there have been cuts, saying all supported housing services for all client groups have seen significant cuts to funding over the past decade including refuges for women and children fleeing domestic abuse. They do point out that this year, their contract with the council has risen. Meanwhile, our survey responses are coming in. But we know we need more data to get a really clear picture of what's happening across the country. We decide on a series of freedom of information requests to local authorities all across England. There are more than 300 different councils, and not all will have responsibility for domestic violence provision. But no one we speak to can provide a definitive list of those that do, so we send them to all 300. It's going to be a big task sifting through them for the relevant replies. A few weeks later, and I head up to meet a refuge manager in the West Midlands. Everyone we're talking to is nervous. Funding in this area is so precarious, no one wants to get on the wrong side of their council. I meet the refuge manager in a small office. Next to us, two women take phone calls from the refuge's helpline. The calls come in every half hour or so. The refuge here is always full, so they're constantly having to turn people away. You know, we do go out of our way to try and find accommodation for other people when we haven't got space ourselves. So, what, I mean, you ha- didn't we have to put someone in Scotland the other week because they were literally like, I'll go anywhere to get away from him, and that was the only place that we had left. Yeah, um, I don't think she actually went, but yeah. that's the only yeah. place we could find. Wow. It, it was a Scottish Islands as well. It was miles yeah. away because she got quite a few children. She got four children. That, that, was, the, that was the only place that we could find because the family of four. You can't find spaces for, and I think there was, that was about the other space. That woman from the West Midlands was advised that the nearest place for her was in the Orkney Islands. That's almost 600 miles away. They don't know if she took up that place. She never... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Call back. One of the managers of the refuge describes to me just how hard it is to get funding. So what you actually want to say is, listen, we run a 24-hour refuge and, you know, we, we meet this the needs of this many women and this many children every year and, and we're struggling. We need more staff. You know, we've got more complex women, we've got higher needs, we've got, you know, more mental health issues, we've got all of these things. Um, you know, and... and um, all we actually want to do is to keep our service going. No, we have to give them this wonderful idea of how we're going to invent this complete new service that sits inside Refuge because so that it's new and innovative or we've got to tell them we're opening more bed spaces and who in their right mind is going to open more bed spaces in this climate. Earlier this year, they had to put their entire staff on notice. They only had enough funds for another three months. Then they were going to have to close their doors. They've had a short-term reprieve now but a constant scrabbling for funds is exhausting. It's a real, it's like someone sticking a sticking plaster on you year after year. You know, it's like going in with a broken arm and someone just literally going, I'll put this plaster on, and then going back and going, well, it's not any better. We'll just put this back on. Well, it's still not any better. We'll, put this, well, now it's kind of hanging off and dropping off. We'll just stick this back on. You know, it's not sustainable to keep doing it like that. Jasmine and I talked to scores of refuge managers. Many have similar complaints. Short-term contracts means they spend much of their time writing applications for funding. Councils seem unwilling to fund the same old refuge provision, so they have to invent new schemes to win funds, despite the fact the old ways were working. And across the board, managers tell us they're having to cut their budgets and the numbers of staff. And that has a knock-on effect. It means they cannot accept the most complex cases, women that need support for their mental health needs, or women with physical disabilities. In fact, the lack of options for women with complex needs is something we're hearing time and time again. A lot of refuge managers were saying that they were turning away a lot of women with complex needs. Um, so these women are described as the most vulnerable of vulnerable out of victims who enter refuges. So these women may have alcohol problems, drug abuse problems, mental health issues. Uh, they may have a disability. And basically, because they cannot fit that need of one bedroom, one bedroom for them, their children, then they just get turned away. Take, for example, one of the women from that Kensington and Chelsea refuge. She's an older lady who walks with a walking stick. Now, she was able to get into the refuge, but in the weeks after the roof came in, I call her and we chat several times. Hello. Hello. How, how are you? No, good. Oh, no. I'm sorry. No, so sorry. She tells me she's been offered a flat in another area of London, but the front door is down steep steps. 
with her mobility issues, she can't get in and out easily. Plus, she says, the door and the front windows face straight onto the main road. Anyone could look in, and she doesn't feel safe. And for others, things are even more complicated. I talk to a charity that works with disabled women, and they tell me there's just a handful of rooms suitable for women in wheelchairs across the country, and that they're often full. As a result, many disabled women just do not leave their abusers. We're also hearing about cuts to specialist provision for black and minority ethnic women, or BME. One refuge provider I speak to in East London has had her funding cut by a third in the last year. Marai Larisai runs Imkan, a black feminist organisation. Marai explains why it's so important that BME services be supported. For us, part of that is um, understanding different cultural nuances, that's important, you know, kind of, yes, all the issues around language, etc. but also just the stuff around autonomy. And one of the things around women surviving violence is actually it really helps if you're being supported by people that understand the range of issues that you're dealing with. So we found in general um, women's refuges are being, funding at local authority level is being cut. Mm. From your experience, what is the situation like for BME specific provision? So we have, um, BME services have been historically underfunded. So it's so we're not starting from a level playing field anyway in terms of service provision. Um, now with austerity, what we've seen is in some areas, 100% cut or services being taken over, local authorities choosing not to um, include BME-specific services in their tender design. All services um, are likely to be at ri- have been at risk of cuts, one way or the other, over the last few years, but we know that BME organisations have been hardest hit. It's now a few weeks since the ceiling came down in Kensington and Chelsea, and Kerry has been housed in a council flat in South London. But it's far from ideal. It took me four days to clean. I mean, the, there was actually like black sludge in the bath. And I'm going to say that it was food on the walls, but it wasn't. It definitely wasn't food. Um, but when you're cleaning it, you kind of convince yourself that it is. I did find out that the lady who had lived in the house before me was also a temporary tenant um, care of the council Um, she'd been sectioned um, so I think she'd had a little bit of a breakdown in the house and had smeared her feces on the wall Um, and the council didn't clean it um, before you know a mother and a child are supposed to just move into that accommodation while while in a sense of distress and vulnerability Um, and all I can say is I'm pleased that I didn't take my daughter to view the flat until I'd given it a good old scrub. You know, when you're cleaning someone's shit off the, the wall and sobbing on your knees, it's not not my best moment. Elsewhere in the city, Susan is in a bed and breakfast. But something horrible has happened. Basically, I caught what I think is the maintenance man taking photos through my window while I was undressed the day after I moved in. I went to the police. First, I contacted my counsellor because they got really weird about it when I told the management... My anxiety is out of control right now and I'm feeling terrified. I think at one point I hadn't slept for four to five days. 
I ended up going to the hospital for urgent care. I said, I am suicidal. My PTSD is back. I haven't slept in five days. I feel like a crazy person. There are moments when I'm losing bits of time where I was laying down one moment and then I lose time and all of a sudden I'm standing up. I'm scared of what I'm going to do. That is how PTSD works. Both Carrie and Susan tell me they're at their wits end. Exhausted, they both end up taking themselves to hospital, scared of their suicidal thoughts. Months have passed since we started looking into this project, and piece by piece, Jasmine and I are building a nationwide picture of what refugees are facing. We've managed to pull in data from scores of the relevant councils, and we're seeing a consistent drop. In fact, across England, when we add everything together, council funding for domestic violence refuges has dropped by a quarter since 2010. And in some regions, it's even more stark. So in Kensington and Chelsea, the council responsible for the refuge where the ceiling fell in, funding for refuges dropped by 45%. We also asked police forces around the country for their records on domestic violence incidents, and those show a huge increase, with reports up by a third in that time period. And then there's the local picture, and this is where things get interesting. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism has a local journalist network, so we reached out to them to dig into the stories in their areas. We had more than 20 local journalists or volunteers researching what was going on, from Yorkshire to Cumbria, Birmingham to Blackpool. They were finding some really interesting things. Um, well, in Cumbria, we found from the, the Bureau local data that um, crime associated with domestic violence has, has gone up year on year. Um, in fact, it now accounts about 13% of all crime in this area. Meanwhile, we can see that the spending on refuge places by the local authority hasn't increased. In fact, it's been static for about eight years now. Um, and that means that it's just not keeping pace with the proportion of victims that are likely to need refuge accommodation away from their homes in the event of a crisis. Uh, so we were looking at uh, domestic abuse in Norfolk and Suffolk. Uh, we found in both areas there'd been a huge rise in terms of reports to the police about domestic abuse. Uh, we spoke to one refuge manager who has... Um, shelters across Norfolk. She said last year they had to turn away 144 women uh, and 98 children um, who, who all needed help. Um, yeah, well, we spoke to, uh, to several solicitors who work in the Lancashire region and they were telling us that they've also seen them, seen the knock-on effects of this, that refuges being able to take in fewer people, that they're having to turn people away, particularly people who've got complex needs like people with a disability. Uh, and they're saying to us that, yeah, they really genuinely do feel it's putting lives at risk. So we get to October and we're almost ready to publish. I'm still talking to the women from the Kensington and Chelsea shelter regularly. Fatima by now is in a council flat, but she was there for five nights without a stick of furniture. On the 4th of August, they gave us the key, so for the first couple of nights, he was sleeping in his pushchair. I made a bed, I bought a towel, and I put that on the floor here, and I used his nappies, his disposable nappies, see, and we made a pillow, so I slept there. And the area she is in worries her. She thinks her husband might look for her there. Two more of the women are sleeping on the floors of family and friends, unable to accept the alternative accommodation offered to them. Susan reported the incident in the bed and breakfast to the police, who contacted the council. 
She's now been moved to a council flat. Another woman is also staying in a bed and breakfast, but she tells me her ex-boyfriend has found her after he tricked her with a false Facebook account. He's beaten her up badly in the past, but after moving homes more than ten times to get away from him, she tells me she's too tired to move again. At least if he tries and gets me while I'm in the bed and breakfast, I can shout and someone might hear me, she says. But for Carrie, things are a little better. She gave up on finding council accommodation. I managed to scrape together enough money to convince a generous private landlord to let her stay. Now she's renting a little one-bed place and invites me round. Hello. This is the right place, hey? How's it going? It's a weird place to find we moved in on Friday, so we uh, five days. We've been here for five days, and it's all it already feels like home. Um, since the roof collapsed, lived in six hotels and um, temporary accommodation, temporary studio flat provided by the council. And then it, my mental health deteriorated to the point where I just had to get out and. Um, forfeited my place on the council list because I just had to move on with my life. So here we are now. Annie, her daughter, gives me the grand tour. I ask her what her favourite part of the flat is. And what do you think of your new home? It's nice. What's your favourite thing about it? The toilet. The toilet? What's so good about the toilet? (laughs) It's in a special room. Will you show me? Yeah. I see this magical toilet. Is that not what you had in the in the hotel or in the refuge? No. Well, this place is really nice. On the 16th of October, we publish our findings. Carrie has written a beautiful first-person account. The link to that is in the show notes. Forty refuge managers all across the country have taken our survey. Thirty-eight of them told us they had to turn women away in the last six months either because they were too full or they couldn't afford the staff to support women with complex needs. And just that small sample group had turned away more than a thousand vulnerable women and children since the start of this year. Experts and politicians tell us the findings reveal a system at breaking point. Women and children are going to die as a result, a refuge manager says. Across the country, dozens of local news stories appear, highlighting the issue. And our national findings go out on Channel 4 News. Domestic violence shatters lives, yet more than a thousand women have been turned away from refuges since the start of this year. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism has also found that cash-strapped councils have cut their funding for domestic violence shelters by almost a quarter since 2010, leaving many vulnerable women with nowhere to go. The Department for Community and Local Government tells us in a statement, Domestic abuse is a devastating crime, and we're taking action to make sure that no victim is turned away from the support they need. We've secured £40 million of dedicated funding for these domestic abuse services over four years up to 2020, and so far we've allocated half of this to local authorities to support 76 projects across England. We looked into that and found actually there's 15% of the adult female population that lives in an area that's not going to get any of that DCLG funding. The department went on to say, we know there's still more to do to tackle domestic abuse, which is why we'll be introducing a landmark domestic violence and abuse bill to protect and support victims and bring perpetrators to justice. Kensington and Chelsea Council tell us, 
Women who have survived abuse need the best possible care and services to help them rebuild their lives. We know and we understand that. More money than ever is being invested in these services. They go on to say, the way in which the service in their area is delivered is the responsibility of Hestia, and the maintenance of the building is managed by the owner's Notting Hill Housing Trust. The council acted immediately to help Hestia temporarily relocate the people at the centre to similar premises, where there was room and at short notice. We expect the very best from the service. We're investigating, and we will take further action if required. The women from the refuge have stayed in touch with each other. In the months since the ceiling came down in the shelter, there have been hard times. Susan tells me some of them have even considered returning to their abusive ex-partners. We have all had that thought. My husband has threatened to kill me. We said, do we go back and risk our lives? These are the options we have to weigh. Do I go back and at least it is stable and I can save enough money to get out and be more stable, but I might also be killed by him before that happens. Or do I stay in this situation where I am starving myself and the stress is unbelievable. We're moving from place to place, losing our things, everything we own. It is just hard. It is so hard and you just have to make the decision. Do you keep fighting or do you give up? And there's so many people that would give up. And we had each other and that is the only reason we didn't give up. That's the only reason we didn't. It took months of work, hundreds of FOIs, more than 20 journalists and volunteers across the country. But together we managed to reveal the true state of the refuge system in England. In the wake of the findings, MPs Jess Phillips and Maria Miller call for a statutory requirement on all local authorities to provide refuge funding. Thanks to Jasmine Anderson and all those that worked on the investigation, and the brave women who agreed to share their stories. This has been a joint production of The Tip-Off and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, hosted and produced by me, Maeve McClenaghan. The words of Susan were read by Ima O'Connor and Fatima by Stephanie So. Our theme music is by Dice Muse, and other music in this episode by Komaku. You can read our articles, including one that sums up all our local network's findings. The links to those are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with a new show every fortnight or so. So stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. This is The Tipper. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.